Lucia, welcome back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. Conversations that explore history, culture, and our identity. With me, your host, Vicky Rameau. You can find previous episodes of our show on www.vickyrameau.com. That's www.vickyremoe.com. And now, make the show begin. the history of Bons Island, you can divide it into like two periods really. The early period when it was operated by two British Crown Charter Companies, the Gambia Adventurers and the Royal African Company of England. These were companies that were heavily subsidized by the, the British royalty, you know, whatever. They did not have a um, huge volume of trade. They were not profitable. So it was merely a means for the British to maintain their presence on the coast. And then there was a break and then the big time players got involved by the mid 1700s when the company of Grant Oswald and Sargent took over operation of Bones Island in 1748. That's when the fate and the fortunes and the reputation of Bones Island was transformed. This period coincides with the emergence of rice economies in the American colonies of South Carolina and Georgia. You know, plantation owners over there had experimented with traditional plantation crops like cotton and sugarcane, but those crops did not do well in the soil and the climatic conditions over there. But rice was doing very well. My guest for today is a leader in cultural preservation, specifically preserving Sierra Leone's slave ports and monuments that mark the country's role in the transatlantic slave trade. She's the former head of the Monuments and Relics Commission. Isatu Smith is our guest today. Ms. Smith, welcome to the Make Sierra Leone Famous podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. First of all, tell me how you became involved in the preservation of Sierra Leone's heritage. How did you get into this work? Oh, okay, thank you. Oh, okay, so how did I get into this work? I actually got into this work in the early 1990s, um, after I graduated from Frabi College with a bachelor's degree with honors in geography. I was research teaching assistant at Frabi College for like two years. And then um, I was at a point in, in my life where I needed to make a move. I was supposed to go for postgraduate studies, but that didn't work out. Then I had an announcement on the radio at that time that the European Union was funding some youth group who were interested in fostering ties between the people of Sierra Leone and the Golagichi people of South Carolina and Georgia. And this was underpinned by research that Joseph Opala, an American anthropologist who was resident in Sierra Leone at that time. This was underpinned by research that he has done that um, um, discovered the link between Bones Island and the Golagichi people of South Carolina and Georgia. So he had given a series of public lectures and a group of youth from Wellington, the east side of Freetown, heard about him and they approached him and said they were interested in working with him to see how they could foster ties between Sierra Leone and the Golagichi people of South Carolina and Georgia. So to cut a long story short, a project proposal was put together and the EEC at that time agreed to fund it through the National Authorization Office. 
But the bulk of these youths were uneducated. So um, Mr. Opala decided that there was need for a graduate who could you know, articulate this history better and go on a tour of educational institutions around the country, sharing the history of Bonds Island and the um, um, Sierra Leone's role in the transatlantic slave trade and our unique connection with the Gola Geechee people. So um, the EU funded a workshop at the British Council wherein graduates were um, asked to apply to be part of this workshop. And the deal was that at the end of the workshop, a test was going to be given and the candidates with the highest mark would be hired as education officer of this new project that they were putting, you know. So that's how I, I got involved. I attended the workshop and by the grace of God, I scored the highest mark and I was hired as the education officer for an outfit called the Silent Girl Kinship Association at that time. So that's how I started working with Heritage Matters, working with Joe Pala. And this was in 1993. Okay, I know a lot of people may never have heard of Joseph Opala, but he's an anthropologist. He came to Sierra Leone as a Peace Corps volunteer in the 70s, and that kick-started his fascination with Bunz Island's history. His anthropological research has created and deepened connections between Sierra Leone and the Gullah Geechee people in North and South Carolina and Georgia. We're going to put links to his work in the podcast notes. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about Bunce Island. What are some of the things that people don't know that make it a very fascinating heritage site for Sierra Leone? There's so much talk about Bunce Island, I don't even know where to begin. But um, it's a fascinating place, like you rightly said, and um, it's um, just 17 miles upriver from Freetown in the Sierra Estuary. You know, you go past um, Tagreen Point, and it's adjacent to Pepel, which is a mining town. And um, it is sad to note that even though Bones Island has a huge international name recognition, majority of Sierra Unions did not even know that such a place existed right under our noses. When I got involved in 93, I'd never heard about Bones Island. First time I visited Bones Island was when we all went as part of the training workshop. That was my first time that I even heard of Bones Island or visited Burns Island. But it is a unique island. It's very tiny. It's just 1,600 feet long and 350 feet wide. And it is at the limits of navigation in the Sierra estuary. And when you get there, you wonder why was this fort built at this place? Why not on Tasso Island? Why not on other islands? And you, when you start delving into the history of Burns Island, you come to know that because of defense and trade purposes, the traders decided to locate their slave fort on Bonds Island rather than Tasso Island, where actually the first fort was built. But Tasso has deep water all around and it was indefensible. You could attack it from all around. So the fort was moved to Bonds Island, which is at the limit of navigation. Ocean going vessels can only go as far as Bonds Island. You cannot go beyond Bonds Island or you will run ashore because it is shallow waters. You know, so they, they located their fort on Bonds Island. At the back of Bonds Island, at the mouth of the two major rivers, the Potloko Creek and the Roque River, that's empty into the estuary. So Bonds was strategically located. You know, it was the first port of call for traders coming from the interior 
down these two major riverways. So the traders on Bons Island, in addition to them being able to defend their island when they were attacked, although I have to say they could not effectively defend the island, but being located at the limits of navigation, they were able to escape from the upriver beach and flee to a friendly African village, wait for the attackers to leave, and then they will come back and rebuild their island. But at least they have that defensive outlets that they did not have on Tasso Island. So in addition to this defense advantage, the traders also get first look at goods coming down from the interior because they were the first port of call. So Bons is a very unique place because when you go there, you are taken back into time. It is an uninhabited island. It is the nation's first national monument. It is very quiet most of the time, except when workers are on site or when you have visitors on site. And it is completely abandoned. And it has this old rubbish, coastal look about it. It's in ruins. And then you are taken back into time and you are transported into when slave trade was going on there. If you have a very skillful tour guide take you through the site, you will be able to recreate the experience of what life looks like while trade was going on. And then, like I said, it is in ruins, but we have um, stabilized the ruins through a project that we recently um, implemented, and I'm sure we'll talk about that down the road, you know, as we carry on this conversation. But it is where history sleeps. That's what Dr. Sarvizmon, who was the first chairman of the Monuments and Relics Commission, who rediscovered Bonds Island in the 1940s after it had been abandoned for over 100 years, that is what he said. He said, Bonds Island is a place where history sleeps. And you get that effect, you get that feeling when you get there, you know, because nothing as much as until we did the preservation project, it was just completely abandoned and nothing had, had been done to the ruins. You know, with the preservation project now, when you go there, you'll see that some work has been done. But we were very careful not to take away that sense of being in a ruin. You know, it's not like a, we did not Disneyfy it. You know, there is no new technological advances or whatever, but we merely stabilize the ruins. So it is a very um, um, special place to visit. It is a site of memory. It is a site where a lot of um, Africans perished. It's a site where a lot of Africans were subjected to inhuman treatment. And it was a point of shipment for thousands of Africans who were shipped to the Americans to be enslaved in the American colonies of South Carolina and Georgia, and then later on Florida. You know, so for me, having worked with Bonds Island for so long, I never get tired of going there. And I can just talk on and on and on about Bonds Island because it's my special thing, you know. I was fortunate enough to visit Bonds Island back in 2009 with a group of African-Americans, or as I like to call them, DNA Sierra Leoneans. And it is a very different experience to visiting Gori Island in Senegal or the slave castles in Cape Coast in Ghana, which were also major trade posts. And that difference is that since the end of slavery, no one has ever lived on Bonds Island. If you visit the other castles, um, they've been touched by modern human life. You know, people live around them. There's a lot of like tourist activity. When you get off the boat and dock at Bonds Island, you are definitely taken back in time. History has stopped there. Um, and that's what makes it really special. Um, when I visited Bonds Island, I learned that US General Colin Powell retired, had visited Bunts Island in 1992. And after he visited, um, as he was leaving Sierra Leone, there was a ceremony held to send him off. And this is what he had to say, quote, I am an American 
I am the son of Jamaicans who immigrated from the island to the United States. But today, I am something more. I'm an African too. I feel my roots here in this continent. Um, those words always remind me of the strong bond and connection um, between African-Americans and, you know, the continents. Like, this just captures all of it. Do we know how many indigenous people from Sierra Leone passed through Bunce Island over the 300, 400 years that it was in use? Yeah, well, Bunce was um, operated from 1670 to 1808. And we both know our Sierra Leone history. We know in 1807, the transatlantic slave trade was abolished by the British Parliament. And it was impossible for slave traders on Bunce Island to continue their trade because of um, Freetown was by then in existence and, and there was intensive efforts to make sure that um, no slave trading took place. So during the period of Bonds Island's operations, around 30,000 Africans passed through its doors to the New World. I have to say, the majority of Bonds' captives were sent to the West Indies, the Caribbean basin, to work on sugarcane plantations. But a significant majority were sent to the American colonies of South Carolina and Georgia. And that is very important to note because when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, the majority of captives were not taken to more than the America. They were taken to the Caribbean basin, you know, the other, other Brazil and, and the like. But in the case of Bones Island, the majority of its captives were taken directly to Charleston, South Carolina. So, and that is a very significant. Do you know, or do we know why it was Charleston? I think I'd read somewhere that it was because of our advanced agricultural and farming skills, specifically for rice. Is that true? Okay, so, um, so when you look at the history of Bones Island, you can divide it into like two periods, really. The early period when it was operated by two British Crown Charter Companies, the Gambia Adventurers and the Royal African Company of England. These were companies that were heavily subsidized by the, the British royalty, you know, whatever. They did not have a um, huge volume of trade. They were not profitable. It was merely a means for the British to maintain their presence on the coast. And then there was a break. And then the big time players got involved by the mid 1700s, when the company of Grant Oswald and Sargent took over operation of Bones Island in 1748. That's when the fit and the fortunes and the reputation of Bones Island was transformed. This period coincides with the emergence of rice economies in the American colonies of South Carolina and Georgia. You know, plantation owners over there had experimented with traditional plantation crops like cotton and sugarcane, but those crops did not do well in the soil and the climatic conditions over there. But rice was doing very well. Unfortunately, the plantation owners were not knowledgeable about rice cultivation. Now, due to earlier travels and interaction with the New World and Africa, they knew that um, people from the rice coast, of which Sayali was a major part of, were traditional rice growers and are very knowledgeable and skilled in this type of cultivation. So, this led to an increase in demand for captives from the rice coast to go and work on these rice plantations in South Carolina and Georgia. Now, in the case of Bounce Island, you were asking why Charleston in particular. The reason is that the principal owner of Bounce Island at that time, Richard Oswald, had forged a unique partnership 
with a plantation owner in Charleston called Henry Lawrence. Oswald, who was British, operating from Britain, they own him and his associates own Bonds Island. And of course, you know, they did not come here themselves to run it. They had factors, they had staff who were running the island, who were running the fort on their behalf. But then in Charleston, they had hired Henry Lawrence, who would receive um, ships, merchant ships, slave ships from Bonds Island and would advertise the cargo, that is both the, the captives and the goods, and they, he will sell off the consignment on behalf of Oswald and he will get a 10% commission for his efforts. So because of this unique partnership between, between Lawrence and Oswald, the majority of Bones Island's captives ended up going to Charleston. And in fact, um, um, research has shown that the over 40% of African Americans could trace their earliest um, 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 onset of start of life in America to Charleston. That's where most of them were disembarked. And from Charleston, they were auctioned off and they, dis they were dispersed all over the United States. Yeah. So, but to answer your question, it was because of rice. It was rice. The talk not on it, but make we take small music break with the musical sounds of Sierra Leone. God, you're beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful and incredible 
Shorty, you're incredible. I'm so in love. Girl, you're the boom. Girl, you're the boom. Was the sound of Jimmy B with You Are Beautiful. Your Beautiful is from the album Beautiful December, released in 2007. As the founder of Paradise Music Recording and Film Production Studio and the country's first modern day pop star, Jimmy B, real name Jimmy Bangura, is known as the godfather of contemporary Sierra Leonean music. And now, Make we go back to make Sierra Leone famous. Ah, okay. So basically, we were West Africa's rice coast, and Charleston was is America's rice coast. And our indigenous people were taken because of their farming know-how. As I think about that, and just I think about this whole series that we've done this year, looking back at Sierra Leone's history, a lot of times when we reflect back on the past and compare it to the present, it just feels like we're worse off. Like, how were we 300, 400 years ago, expert rice farmers? And today you have NGOs who have to go into our communities to teach our people how to farm rice. That just feels like ah, just an extreme shift from where we once were. In any case, um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, it's important that we know our history. What is the mandate of the Monuments and Relics Commission? And how has the commission worked with people like Professor Joseph Opala for the preservation of Bunce Island over the years? Specifically, um, I know that several years ago, there was talk about a fund or a pledge of about two or $5 million for a Bonds Island restoration project that was led by Joseph Opala. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I was the, the, the chairperson of the Monuments and Relics Commission from 2014 to 2018. The, the mandate of the commission is to you know, protect you know, objects of scientific, archaeological, historical, cultural you know, interest in Sierra Leone, and that is a very broad mandate. You know, most people um, have a narrow view of what the commission does or, or is supposed to do, and they only think about proclaimed assets, the national monuments, that that's what the commission is supposed to take care of. That is not true. Like the mandate says, they're supposed to protect all objects of scientific, archaeological, cultural, historical objects, in whether they are nationally recognized, as in the case of national monuments, or not. As long as they are within the jurisdiction of Sierra Leone and they fit into that mold, the commission is supposed to protect them. Um, um, and then you also asked about the relationship of Joe Pala and Bones Island and earlier efforts to preserve Bones Island. Like we already said at the beginning of this conversation, it, um, the work that we are doing and did with Bones Island is underpinned by initial research that Joe Opala did. He was very instrumental in making the connection between Bones Island and the Golagichi people of South Carolina and Georgia. And Joe um, had been trying over the years to secure funding to protect Bones Island without much success, or I should say with, with varying degrees of success. You know, some minor, 
as, for example, Isaiah Washington that you, you mentioned, he donated some funds towards um, Bones Island that Joe used to put together an exhibit. And then there is this big time anonymous donor who came forward and pledged, I use the word pledge deliberately, intentionally, he pledged $500,000 for the preservation of Bones Island. At that time, Joe had an outfit set up called the Bones Island Coalition, and they had a US chapter, a UK chapter, and a Freetown chapter. And the goal of the coalition was to raise funds for the preservation of Bones Island, and they wanted to have a museum built, you know, they wanted to preserve the ruins of Bones Island, and also to support public education. Now, um, using funds that the donor provided, a lot of background assessments were done, archaeological surveys, engineering surveys, and stuff like that. Um, now, I do not know exactly how much money the donor actually gave, because he was anonymous, and Joe Dill, according to Joe, based on what he said, and based on the reports that he made to government, all a tiny fraction of that amount was actually given. But the bulk of what was given was used to, to fund you know, assessments and studies and stuff. When you work with a site like Bonds Island, you don't, you don't just go in and start work. You have to conduct a series of assessments, and these will then inform your conservation plan. For a site like Bonsailor, you need to first have a conservation management plan, which is like the Bible. That document tells you, it brings together, it summarizes all prior scientific assessments that have been done, and these assessments will then advise on the type of intervention that should be done. And we were able to put together a conservation management plan for Bones Island, and this document brought together all these background studies that had been done before, but then with experts' advice as to what should be done, and how it should be done, and what not to do. And that is very key. It is your Bible that tells you what to do and what not to do. So the donors fund did not actually pay for this conservation management plan, but the information that was summarized in this document were collected through assessment that were undertaken using funds that this donor, this donor provided. Now, at some point, the donor could no longer continue providing funds, and he basically just stopped. So that's why when you jokingly said that Joe used some of his money, according to reports that we had, Joe indeed said he used up some of his inheritance money to continue funding the operations of the project at that time because he thought that the donor would come back, you know, but that did not happen. Um, but Bonsailan has been very lucky because in addition to Joe Pala, I have to state that in addition to Joe Pala, we've had other uh, researchers who have all equally, well not equally, but who have somewhat dedicated their lives to Bones Island as well. You know, uh, we have an archaeologist, Christopher Dicos. He, uh, he too came in the 70s as a Peace Corps volunteer right around the time that Joe did. And he too has a long history of association with Bones Island. You know, so we've, had, we've been lucky in the sense that we've had a lot of people who have shown keen interest and devoted their time resources and energy towards researching Bones Island. And what we did now was to bring together all of these information into this one document called the Conservation Management Plan. You know, so we, like I said, we were lucky in that sense. Whilst I was at the Commission, at the Monuments and Relics Commission, um, in 2015, I think, we did the, uh, an application to the United States Ambassador's Fund for Cultural Preservation. 
at that time, the, the ambassador's fund only gives small grants, like maybe $75,000 or stuff like that. They are given a prior grant for Bones Island, and it was used to do the, the archaeological surface and resource as assessments. This was way back before my, my time. So when we came into office, we applied for funds for the construction of a jetty at Bones Island. I'm, I'm sure when you said you visited in 2009, in 2009 there was no proper jetty at Bones Island. There was a huge concrete block that Delco, the mining company that used to operate from Pepel, Delco had dumped this huge concrete block on Bones Island and it was used as a, as a jetty. Now, we knew that um, um, if we were going to start opening up the island to tourism and, and stuff, we needed a safe jetty for people to be able to get on boats and get off boats at Bones Island. We have we had, had incidents of you know, visitors cutting themselves in the sharp oyster shells that were in the, in, the, in the water or people just falling into the water. Or you'll have to either walk in the water when you get, off, get at the island or you'll have to be carried on the backs of one of these young men you know, from the boats. So we wanted to start addressing the issues that Bones had and we thought a jet would be a great way to start. So we made an application for funding for a jetty. That this was in 2015, I think. And then we were told, well, in 2015, we were unsuccessful. In 2016, we made another application. We were very persistent, we did not give up. And then we got word back that, you know, Bones Island is a very important site for not only African-Americans, but for America, period, for the United States of America. You've referenced the visit of Colin Powell and the statement that he made, you know. One thing, you just mentioned part of his statement. He said, I feel special, I feel like an African today, whatever. But he went on to say that Bones Island was the most important site for African-Americans outside of America. So, referencing all that importance and the close ties that Bones has with, well, I'm going to say with the United States, we got word back that, you know, this is a very important site for us. We really want to be involved. But we want your government to show some commitment towards preservation of Bones Island. So, if you can withdraw your application for funding for the jetty and have your government fund the construction of a jetty, then you can turn around and put in an application for the large grants. At that time, the ambassador's fund was giving out large grants up to like $500,000, $750,000, you know. So that was the challenge that we had. But to also make us, make bonds a little bit more competitive to attract this funding, we went ahead and applied to have Bonds Island placed on the World Monuments Watch. Now the World Monuments Watch is a list that the World Monuments Fund puts out every two years, and this list has sites that are endangered around the world that are very important, but that are badly conserved, but that need international exposure that will then make them competitive to attract funding for their preservation. So we applied to have Bones Island placed on the World Monuments Watch, and we were successful. It was placed on the 2016-2018 watch cycle. So with that in place, we forged a partnership with the World Monuments Fund. So in, in 2016, when we decided to do the application, we partnered with the World Monuments Fund 
and it was a joint application. The World Monument Fund has a long history of implementing projects that were funded by the United States um, Fund for Cultural Preservation. So we, that strengthened our, our bid for funding. So with that, with that in place, we were successful in getting the funds. And in 2017, the um, Ambassador um, Maria Brewer announced the, that we were successful in, in securing the funds and we had an event at Bonbons Island to signal the start of work, you know, that we now have the fund and we could get to work. So $500,000 was awarded to the World Monuments Fund to implement the Bonds Island project with the, with the Monuments Island Commission being partners, collaborators, you know, so the project was to be jointly implemented by the World Monuments Fund and the Monuments and Relief Commission under the aegis of the Minister of Tourism and Cultural Affairs. So that was the funding, funding arrangement, you know, so, and that's what we did. So the, you've asked what the project was about. The project, the main goals of the project were, one, of course, to stabilize the, the ruins, you know. Number two was community engagement. Now in heritage preservation, that is key. You always have to start with and end with the community that are custodians of any asset that you are working with. It is key. And over the years, we've had um, a long history of collaboration, of engagement, of engaging the communities that surround, that are neighboring Bonds Island. We've had varying degrees of success. We've had instances of vandalism, theft, and all the likes. We've had instances of youth going to Bonds Island for outings and playing loud music that was dangerous to the ruins. We have had instances of sand mining and everything. So we've had a long history of engaging the communities that surround Bonds Island in a way to build, you know, um, 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 to build partnership really because we needed them to help us preserve Bonds Island because most of these communities have historical and cultural ties to Bonds Island. So they had a vested interest in the preservation of Bonds Island. You know, they, it, it, in fact, it belongs to them in a way. This was their island. Their forefathers were employed on the island and some of their forefathers are buried on the island. So we, we, over time, we were able to build a partnership with all of these neighboring communities. So part of the project was to foster this community engagement. We also had an education and training component and then we also have site presentation. You know, we wanted to enhance visitor facilities on the site to make it more accessible and more and more pleasant for visitors to, to go to. So those are the main goals of the of the, the of the project. Hi, this is Vicky Ramo from the Make Sierra Leone Famous Podcast. I just wanted to say we really, really appreciate all your comments, all your feedbacks, the emails, the DMs, every other way that you get back in touch with us. If you really love this show and you want us to keep making content to make Sierra Leone famous, don't forget to leave us a review. Thank you. And now, make we go back to make Sierra Leone famous. Now you ask what have we achieved since we did the project. Now, after the announcement was made in 2017 by Ambassador Brewer, the US Ambassador, we conveyed a technical, a special technical meeting in February 2018. We flew in all the experts that had been identified to implement the project, and we had a big meeting in, in Freetown. Now, what the, you need this kind of meeting. What you do is you take your conservation management plan. You know, remember the documents that I said was, was prepared. You take that and you take the, the, guide, the guidance that is contained in that document 
and you, you, you try to make them into actual activities to implement your project. So during this special technical meeting that we held in February of 2018, we, we had um, discussions you know, from various experts and we went to Bones Island and we covered that island inch by inch by inch by inch. What you do during that site visit is you have a, a, a collaborative team input when everybody, based on their various expertise, would advise on what needs to be done on each portion of the fort. So we were able to do that in February, and then we then developed a document called a conservation plan. That's, you know, so, you know, so, and we had that document, so we were ready to get to work. But then, as you may recall, in 2018, we had elections in Sierra Leone. So there was a break, you know, we, we did not want to start work during the rainy season, Elections were in March, you remember? And then by the time we were done with elections, it was the rains. So we were not going to start work until after the rains. We were actually supposed to start work in October of 2018, but then there were some administrative matters that need to be amended because there was a new government in, in place. So there was like a three months delay. And then finally, I think it was December of 2018, all the, the, the agreements were re-signed by the new ad administration and then we were finally ready to get to work. So work started in January of 2019. After all the work that has been done now to stabilize Bunce Island, um, install the installation of the new visitor facilities and ongoing work with the community to do outreach and engagement so that they understand that preserving the island is in the best interest. What's next for the island? Is it now open to the public for visits? How do people get access um, to the island? And what are some of the key things that we all need to know moving forward? Okay, so um I'm no longer with the Monuments and Wellness Commission, so I am not in a position to give you like a very updated what's next report. What I can say is we were able to stabilize the ruins, we were able to train 100, I mean 51 local people from the surrounding villages, of which eight were women. These people worked on the projects on themselves and they were trained by various experts. We were able to take children from the school heritage clubs of 133 children visited bonds during preservation work. And then um, we also trained some tour guides. Now, we then built a toilet. There was no toilet facility on the island. We've transformed the Katika South into a visitor center. We put in trails so that you can move around the fort at ease. You know, and we had plans to put in signage. Unfortunately, we, we have not done that yet. Now, what um, is it open for visitors? It was never shut down. Even whilst work was going on, it was still open. If I, that was part of the attraction, I encouraged people to visit whilst work was going on. I enjoyed working visitors. Yeah, on one of the few occasions that I was on site, when visitors arrived whilst work was going on, I actually got the, the lead preservation expert that was on site to talk to them because we, this was, we wanted the public to own the, 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 pro, the project, the process that was going on. So we, we at, at every opportunity we had, we got them involved and engaged. So we would give talks to visiting tour groups, just explain to them what we were doing and stuff like, like, like that. So the site was never shut down and it, it is still open, but you know, it's a place that you only visit seasonally. You can only go there in the dry season. So, you know, during the rains, because of the, it is, it is an open site, you know, there is no shelter 
and the, the river, the water is so harsh and rough during the rains. Much um, visiting is not done during the rainy season, so it is mostly during the dry season. So it's, it's been open ever since. It was never never shut 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 down. Now, if, like I say, for updated um, information about what goes on and what you'll have to go to the Monuments and Lakes Commission for them to share with you what their current plans are. I'm not privy to 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 those. But what I knew before was that there is a visiting fee that you pay to access the, to access the island and you usually the tour groups, the tour operators will go with a trained tour guide. They'll take you around the island. The visiting fee goes directly to the Monuments and Relics Commission and that is supposed to be for the upkeep of the of the island, which is key because the United States government has spent thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars hundreds of thousands of dollars to preserve Bones Island, it is now our responsibility to maintain the site. You know, and another good thing is that we train all these local people in how to do the work around the site. They should form the, form the, the core of the maintenance crew that the commission will utilize from time to time to carry out minor, minor repairs around the, 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 the site. You know, and we actually, when we do our report, the site stabilization is great, but we always point to the fact that we were able to take just average aliens on most of them uneducated aliens who knew nothing about heritage work. We we went working through the local traditional rulers, you know, in Pepel, Taso, Sangulima, Okutong, you know, and then we brought them together and we were able to give them hands-on training on how to carry out the various tasks that goes along with preserving the site like Bones Island. By the time we were done, we had a crew that was dedicated to the archaeologists, and they were doing all the tagging, the cleaning, the excavations and stuff like, like that. While the crew that was working with Tony Steele, who was a British um, master stonemason, who was leading the work on Bones Island. We had um, Desmond Jones, who is a young cellular engineer, who worked alongside Tony. And by the end of the work, Tony, um, Desmond is now very comfortable working on preservation projects. He had no prior experience. So we point to that as one of our key successes in the, this Bones Island project, the fact that we were able to train local Sayulians in the arts and crafts of heritage work. You know, and they will now, if there is a similar project in Sierra Leone, that those people now have to start from scratch like we had to do. They will then call on these trained, you know, people and use them to do to do the work, you know. So those are we, we can point to a lot of success stories, you know, with the implementation of the Bonside and Project. Yeah. Sierra Leone Famous. The podcast is mixed and mastered by producer Frank Vin Bob McEwen with support from the creative and talented team over at VRNC Marketing Company in Freetown. And now, make we go back to Make Sierra Leone Famous. Before we close out this conversation, I just want to share a little story about Bunce Island and the work that Joseph Opala has done over the years. In 1998, a movie was made called The Language You Cry In, which told the story of a song that African Americans passed on from slavery to emancipation until a linguist cataloged the song and its words in the 1930s. He had recorded it from a woman in a fishing village in the state of Georgia whose name was Amelia Dolly. Amelia Dolly had sung this song her entire life without knowing its meaning. 
Lorenzo Turner documented her words and the song. And it just so happened that a Sierra Leonean graduate student was at the same school at Turner. When he heard the song, he recognized the words to be from the Mende language, from the Mende people of Sierra Leone. In the 1980s, while doing his anthropological work and research on Bunce Island at Furbe College, Joseph Opala found Amelia's song. And over the years, Opala and a Sierra Leonean linguist, Taziaf Koroma, and Cynthia Schmidt, an ethnomusicologist, worked to see if they could find anyone in Sierra Leone who would recognize the song. Eventually, they found Bindu Jabati, who was living in Senahu, Angola, on the borders of the eastern and southern province. Bendu confirmed that Amelia's song was actually Tinjami, Mende for crossing the river. Bendu remembered that her grandmother had sang the song and that it was a song done usually at funerals. And so we learn the deep ties and connections between indigenous Sierra Leoneans taken away from Bunce Island and their descendants who today are spread across the United States with deep roots in the state of Georgia and the Carolinas. I'm going to read to you the words from Amelia's song, also known as Tinjami, as translated by Taziaf Koroma, Edward Benya, and Joseph Opala in the movie The Language Ukraine. Everyone, come together. Let us work hard. The grave is not yet finished. Let his heart be perfectly at peace. Everyone, come together. Let us work hard. The grave is not yet finished. Let his heart be at peace at once. Sudden death commands everyone's attention like a firing gun. Sudden death commands everyone's attention, O oh, elders, O oh, heads of family. Sudden death commands everyone's attention like a distant drumbeat. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guest, Isatu Smith, for sharing all the great work that's being done to preserve Bunce Island. I hope some of you listening can visit and get to visit after this pandemic year is away from us. This is also the last show for this season of the Make Sierra Leone Famous podcast. It has been an amazing journey exploring our history, culture, and identity with you over the past year. We're going to spend the next several months planning new conversations and looking for ways to continue to make Sierra Leone famous for all the right reasons. Thank you. Well, now don't so for today on edition of Make Sierra Leone Famous with me, your host, Vicky Rameau. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Ta-ta.